Greetings and welcome to this, the fifth episode of History Zine. Lots of goodies for you this week. I've been browsing around on the internet and found quite a few intriguing little items. For podcast reviews this week, we'll be looking at the National Archives podcast series and, of course, we'll be pushing on with our series on the War of the Spanish Succession. This week we'll be looking at some of the frustrations that Marlborough had to deal with in trying to lead the Allied armies. So, first up, I want to talk a little about the National Archives podcast series. Now, this is quite a peculiar series. It's got a bit of all sorts in. The only thing that holds it together is that it all has something to do with the National Archives. That's the UK National Archives. And what are these UK National Archives? And the subtitle gives us a clue. It says UK Government Records and Information Management. Now this is a wonderful site, particularly if you're researching your family history and you had family here in the UK. It's not a great site if you're just browsing because very little of the full detail of the records is actually available online or available on the internet you can you can see what's there online and you can order the full records from the research office if you want it seems mostly it's set up to go down to the record center in london and to look through the records there there's a lot available that is free to look round but you have to be actually on site to do it now as to the talks themselves the podcast series they do talk about the records and they talk about how to use the records. And, but there's also visiting lecturers who will talk on a vast array of subjects. We had one called, Was the Cromwellian Protectorate a Police State? There was another one on Stalinist Russia and another one on Jamestown. So as you see, themes go here, there and everywhere. But my favourite, my favourite by far, was a talk called Sex lies and civil registration this was absolutely delightful and it was given by somebody who i suppose spends far too much time delving into these records i've just checked up her name and it's audrey collins but she really knew her stuff and had lots of amazing stories lots of stories about weird anomalies you find in the records lots of warnings about not taking a birth date you find on a certificate as being absolutely accurate or even a marriage date one of the problems with a birth date is it has to be a birth has to be registered within a certain amount of time otherwise there's a fine so of course everybody will readjust that birth date to make sure they're not fined the worst offender by far seems to be the registration of death there was a, a scam going that was had to do with what they called burial clubs. And a burial club you, was like an insurance, and you pay so much every week into this insurance. And there would be a period of about what, something like six weeks you have to have been paying into this insurance before you could make a claim. And so they would join up to lots and lots of different burial clubs and then register a death. And it seemed at one time there was no need for a natural body. Of course, the whole... Of course, the whole scam got much, much more sinister when the need for a body came in. And, and so, of course, people were required to produce a body. It may not be the right body, or they may have just killed off their nearest and perhaps not so dearest to claim the money from the burial clubs. And registrars would often know the people that were coming to them or they would be part of the local community. So they would hear the local gossip and quite often they could find out 
what had been going on. So there's a lot in the records there where a crime is actually shown to unfold in the civil records. So lots and lots of weird and wonderful stuff happening in the registration of births and deaths. I heartily recommend particularly that episode. But you'll find quite a few little gems in the National Archives podcast series. One warning though, many, many of them are really bad audio quality. Particularly when you've got the weekly lecture, I think it's a weekly lecture, and it's a room full of people. You'll get all the noise of the people and you get the strange acoustics of the room. If the speaker's not particularly loud, then it's going to be a little bit difficult to concentrate on what they're saying. But many of the lecturers are very good, so I would recommend this series. This is the National Archives podcast series, particularly of interest to UK listeners and those researching UK family history. And that was a podcast review. And now for something else, another item, should I call it maybe Cabbages and Kings, at the risk of making this program even more confusing than it actually is, or... Maybe I should actually say what it is. And what it is is just things I've spotted around the net that have piqued my interest. And the particular thing I want to draw your attention to in this episode... I keep wanting to say this week there, but I'm not prolific enough to produce an episode every week. But the thing that interested me this time is called World War I Experiences of an English Soldier. And I love the way they've done this. They've got a bunch of letters, and I'm assuming they're family letters, from a soldier called Harry Lamin. And he's fighting in France and in Italy during the First World War. And they're doing it as a blog, so on the date that the letters were written, they're being published to the blog. It's, it's really quite fascinating. I'm, I'm following this sort of almost day by day. And it's actually the mundanity of the letters that intrigues me. World War I is undoubtedly, to my mind, the biggest thing that happened in the 20th century. And possibly the thing that still affects us more than any other event. And yet, here are these letters going back and forward about family, about friends, thanking them for things they've sent, for cakes. There's little bits censored here and there where he might have given too much information about where they were or troop strengths. It's a lovely little blog, and one I'm going to keep watching, I reckon. I shall, of course, put a link on my webpage, but I'll tell you the address here. It's www.blogspot.com. And now for my linguistic history trivia bit. I've got a nursery rhyme. It popped into my head for no particular reason, and I start thinking, I wonder where this came from. You know, what is it talking about? And the nursery rhyme is, Here we go round the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. Here we go round the mulberry bush on a cold and frosty morning. And I had a browse around the web, and it seems it's possibly a song that was sung by the inmates at Wakefield Prison. I say possibly, it sounds like one of those stories that have just grown up over the years, so it may or may not have them. But there was a mulberry bush apparently in the exercise yard. But I found it kind of intriguing. I, I grew up on the south of Leeds, just on the border with Leeds and Wakefield. And Wakefield Prison is a forbidding monster of a building that overshadows the city centre. I was having a look at the website for Wakefield Prison. And it's 
Well, the original building is quite an old one, built apparently in 1595. And I love the little bit about how it financed itself. It seems the staff were not paid a salary, but made money by selling the prisoners' work and receiving a release fee when the inmate sentence finished. I can recommend the financing of prisons as a wonderful study if you've got some time to spare. The idea that prisons should be paid for by the state is actually quite a recent thing. Up until certainly before the 20th century, they were expected to finance themselves. And there are all sorts of ingenious methods thought up to finance the prisons. So, here we are, part five in our story on the War of the Spanish Succession. And I mentioned in a previous episode that the Duke of Marlborough had been given a sort of maybe not quite command of the Allied armies against the French. In this episode, I want to illustrate some of the problems that were thrown up by this decision and give some indication of what Marlborough could have achieved if he had been given free reign as absolute commander. So Marlborough had been given this command and there were many conditions upon it. One of them was that he should be accompanied at all times by five Dutch field deputies. And these field deputies were empowered to exercise a veto over any operations, or operations that involved Dutch troops. So we've immediately got a problem here, because the poor old Dutch Republic have been up against it for year after year after year. Well, they've had Spain on their doorstep, and now they've got France on their doorstep. And so the whole Dutch thinking is behind a purely defensive strategy. They've built a line of great fortresses. And this magnificent, stubborn defence has worked well for them. However, Marlborough has an entirely different strategy in mind. Marlborough was looking for the giant field battle. He felt the way to win the war is to destroy the enemy's ability to make war. And you do this by bringing their army into the field against yours and smashing them entirely. So, as soon as he arrives at Nimwegen, he immediately sets about trying to persuade them to take the army away from the shelter of Nimwegen out into the field to confront the enemy. Now, these negotiations dragged on and on and on. But, eventually, he did get permission to take the army away from Nimwegen and immediately led them out across the Maas, which I think back then was called the Mus, and straight down towards Brabant. He set off at a cracking pace and actually managed to get his army in between the forces led by Boufflet and Boufflet's home base, the Brabant. This gives Boufflet a real dilemma. With Marlborough sitting there across his lines of supply and communication, his position now becomes untenable for any period of time or for any long period of time. So he makes the decision to make a forced march across in front of Marlborough to try and get back to the Brabant. This is, of course, ideal for Marlborough. He has the French forces scurrying across in front of him with their entire flank exposed for a long, long period of time. The perfect opportunity for a crushing attack. Unfortunately, and I know a lot of you can hear it coming, can't you, the Dutch deputies decide they do not wish to attack as they see the French forces are already retreating and so why should they waste resources attacking an already retreating army this must have driven Marlborough crazy but 
He bit his lip and didn't try to force the issue. However, he did insist upon the Dutch deputies coming up onto the ridge and looking down upon the French army as they passed. And as they did look down, they couldn't help but admit that a great opportunity had been lost here. So, you would hope that Marlborough had won a bit of a victory in the negotiations here with his own Dutch deputies. And it seems he had, because the next time, not we're only talking, I think it's a couple of weeks later, Marlborough had again manoeuvred himself into a position where he was confronting the French, and the French army was tired, it wasn't organised into battle lines, it was another great opportunity to attack. The deputies this time agreed, and so Marlborough made ready his attack. This time, however, Marlborough was to be scuppered by one of the Dutch generals, many of whom I can imagine would be none too pleased at being led by this English earl, who has had much less military experience than they. So this attack was to start with an assault upon Boufflet's left wing. And it was to be led by General Opdam. Now Opdam had decided that he would wait, and he was waiting for the ground to firm up. And he waited all day for the ground to firm up, and while he's waiting for the ground to firm up, the rest of the army are waiting for him to attack, so that the rest of the plan can be put into operation. Night comes, and no attack has been made. The following day, it's the Dutch deputies who are again worried, because the element of surprise has been lost, and the negotiations over whether to attack or not go on all day. And so yet again, another day has passed, and no attack has been made. Come the night time, and their decision is made for them, because a much-relieved Boufflet slips his army away under cover of darkness. So yet another frustrating disappointment for Marlborough. But... 1702 wasn't an entirely bad year, for despite these frustrations, he went on to conduct a spectacular series of sieges that year. At the start of the year, the French held all the line of fortress cities all the way down the Meuse, except for poor old Maastricht down there in the south, and the Allied forces managed to recapture all all of these towns, all the towns along right up to Maastricht, and then the next one along, which is Liège. This action takes out of the war one of France's smaller allies, which is the Bishop of Liège, and it means they gain a fair degree of control over the Meuse, which means they can move their heavy siege cannons down the river and move their food supplies down the river. The rivers being so, so vitally important when you're moving such large amounts of supplies to feed such vast armies as they have in this day and age. And with the Allied armies having taken these cities and moved their front lines further forward, they can now billet their forces for the winter and use that land to feed their forces over the winter months, so they'll be ready for a renewed assault in the spring. Now, I want to finish this time with a story of a little incident that happened toward the end of that year's campaigning. And it's an incident that could so very easily have changed the way events were played out. It's an incident that so very nearly removed Marlborough from the picture entirely. He was returning to the Hague along the river, this is the River Meuse, when his boat was ambushed by French forces. They grabbed the tow rope and pulled the boat into the shore. 
They dispatched the guards and began plundering the boat. Now, fortunately, Marlborough had with him a rather quick-thinking young clerk, who had with him a French passport made out to Marlborough's younger brother. Now, the French, they continued to ransack the boat, but they allowed Marlborough's party to continue on their journey. And this is, well, this is such a small occurrence compared to, you know, great armies smashing into each other, but could have had such a large knock-on effect. Marlborough was, of course, very grateful to this clerk, who was given a very generous pension for his act. Queen Anne was absolutely delighted at all the success. She rewarded Marlborough with a dukedom, which was a bit of a two-edged sword, really. One, it's very good. It, it raises Marlborough's prestige, especially when he's talking to princes and kings. But it does mean much more is expected of you to keep up appearances. A duke is expected to be much grander, much more lavish than an earl. And quite frankly, John Churchill and Sarah Jennings just didn't have the money to keep up these kind of appearances. Still, Marlborough decided to accept the dukedom, knowing that it would help him in negotiations. Right, so I'm going to leave it there this week. I was going to talk a little bit about the art of war, the way war was conducted at these times. But I'm going to leave that for the next episode because I'm going to bring the next episode out quite quickly because next episode I want to talk about there's a reenactment at Oudenarde for this year that I'm going along to and I hope to have some more details for you next time. So I shall slip out the next podcast quite soon. And we probably won't push the narrative of the Spanish succession on much more at all. But I will do the piece I was going to do on the art of war. And a little bit about the reenactment that's going to take place at Oudenarde in July this year. That's 2008. That's on the 300th anniversary of the original Battle of Oudenarde. So, bye for now and I'll see you again or talk to you again very, very soon. Goodbye.